Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today we'll speak with Nancy Solomon, the host of Dead End, the newest New Jersey political murder mystery podcast. The details that that came out in drips and drabs for a few months after the case were just so strange and so startling. WBGO's John Kalish has the story of a new exhibit on Jews and cannabis. The opening also drew a couple of counterculture legends known for their legalization advocacy. I'll chat with one of the stars of Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood Live, the pride of Chatham, New Jersey. Kimmy Newsholtz plays Katerina Kitty Cat in the beloved production heading to the Count Basie Center for the Arts in Red Bank. With Daniel Tiger using music as a means to communicate a lot of these important messages like be a good neighbor and kindness is everywhere. And film critic Harlan Jacobson reviews Top Gun Maverick. All this coming up today on an extended one-hour episode of the WBGO Journal. Dead End, a New Jersey political murder mystery. It's a new podcast series from WNYC Studios. A couple dies in 2014, sending their son on a quest for truth. Dead End is the story of crime and politics in New Jersey. The brutal killing of John and Joy Sheridan in 2014, a prominent couple with personal ties to three governors, shocked even the most cynical operatives. The mystery surrounding the crime fascinated the host of this new podcast series, Nancy Solomon, who is not only the host and producer of Dead End, but she's also the host of Ask Governor Murphy right here on WBGO. Nancy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me. You've already got me hooked. The fourth episode came out this week. It comes out every Tuesday morning at 10.30. Dead End is right up Doug Doyle's alley and so many others who love crime-oriented documentaries and podcasts. So well done, Nancy. Congratulations on just getting this off the ground. It's amazing work. Thank you. It's been a bit of a passion project. Um, Some might say I'm obsessed, uh, but it's just been incredible to have the time to work on it for so long because I've been working on it for two years, even though I took major breaks to go back to the newsroom uh, when I was needed, especially the first like eight months of the pandemic and um, and during the election. But I've had a, a lot of time to work on it, and it's been nice to focus on one big project. What's fascinating about this podcast series is even though it focuses on the violent deaths of a couple back in 2014, it has become even more relevant in 2022 because of some new circumstances. So after listening to three episodes of Dead End, I am so curious. What sparked Nancy Solomon's interest in this case early on to spend nearly two and a half years putting this podcast together? Well, you know, John Sheridan... He, he wasn't well known across New Jersey. I don't think you could, you know, people don't didn't know his name and he wasn't like a household name. But um, when news broke in September 2014 of his death, um, you know, it was notable because those of us who pay attention to politics in New Jersey knew what a significant person he was. Um, and also knew that he worked for George Norcross. And George Norcross is a person that political reporters, you know, he's like catnip to political reporters like me because um, he's powerful and he runs a very effective political operation. Um, And he's considered one of the most powerful people in the state, even though he's never been elected to uh, public office. So the fact that someone uh, died, you know, in a violent death, and he was connected to this other person who was, you know, so kind of well known. And the details that would that came out in drips and drabs for a few months after the case were just so strange and so startling, um, and it just didn't make sense. And that that really fueled my interest, and I think the interest of others, like. Whoa, you know, just you wanted to know what what happened. It certainly sparked the interest of the eldest son, who was a twin. Mark Sheridan investigated the death of his mom and dad for more than two years. And I guess his wife said, enough is enough. But when you reopened this kind of wound for that family, Nancy, what kind of reaction did you get? I'm sure that it was kind of mixed, right? Yeah, I mean, he was very reluctant to even, you know, do an interview on the record with me. I mean, he would... You know, we would talk on the phone from time to time and he would 
talk with me about the case um, and, and provide information, but it was always kind of off the record. And he really didn't, he, he, he didn't want to get dragged back into it. And I think his family was even more reticent of him getting dragged into it and of them having to participate. And, um, and up to, you know, up to this point, uh, his three brothers have declined uh, to get involved with the podcast or to to speak with me. Um, you know, because they're really ready, to, I think, to be done. And um, you know, but Mark is a lot like his mom, and he he's a bulldog, and he wants justice for his parents. And so, um, I think he's he's going through what is a painful process. Uh, to, you know, kind of pick the scab off the wound and talk to me about it and provide me with information. Um, and so, you know, and and to just have all the attention on it again, it's, it's hard for him, I think. Before we talk about the circumstances, Mark Sheridan isn't just somebody who just lost his parents in a maybe murder-suicide or some other crime that happened in 2014 in Skillman, New Jersey. That's in Somerset County, by the way. He's a prominent figure as well. Yeah, and uh, it is definitely one of the other interesting elements. Um, Mark Sheridan was the, uh, he's a litigator and attorney uh, for a big firm in New Jersey, but he was also the lawyer for the state Republican Party. Um, and at the time of his parents' deaths, he was the lawyer for the Chris Christie campaign, which was dealing with Bridgegate at that time in 2014. And so he was doing some work coordinating all the, you know, every, every person who had some connection to the Bridgegate scheme, which was the, you know, lanes being blocked on the George Washington Bridge by, uh, by the Christie Confederates of Chris Christie to punish a mayor for not endorsing him. Um, so he was anybody who was involved in that. Um, he was kind of coordinating their legal team, um, and so all the lawyers were talking to each other. And uh, so, and you know, and his father was enormously well connected uh, across the aisle on both sides. Um, some eighteen hundred people went to the memorial. Um, so you really have like a, a very well-connected family, you know, in this milieu of both New Jersey legal circles and political circles. So on the record right now, what happened to John and Joy Sheridan? What do the authorities say really happened? So the, uh, the case was investigated by the Somerset County Prosecutor's Office, which because in New Jersey, the prosecutor's office takes on major crimes. Um, so they immediately, you know, got assigned to this one. Um, they quickly came to the conclusion that it was a murder-suicide. Um, that was based on their belief when they arrived that, um, that they had a couple who had been violently killed in, that were inside a bedroom that was blocked. The exit was blocked because a armoire was fallen over on its side and actually was on top of John Sheridan's body when they got inside the room. So they weren't able to open the door immediately and the firefighters had to force their way in uh, because the armoire was blocking the door. So detectives thought, you know, nobody can get out of the room. This has got to be a murder-suicide. Um, and the room had been uh, set on fire. Uh, both victims had been stabbed quite violently. Um, and they decided that this was sort of a rage attack that John Sheridan committed against his wife and then uh, turned the knife on himself. And um, the Sheridan family said, no, this cannot be, this is just not possible. Um, and started, you know, really asking questions from the start. And uh, one of the curious things that happened very early on is that the, the Somerset County prosecutor told the Sheridan brothers that they might want to get their own medical uh, examiner to come in and do a second autopsy because the state medical examiner's office is not very good, uh, which is kind of shocking. Um, it we wouldn't know more about that until later. I don't get into it in the podcast, but you know the Star Ledger newspaper did a huge takedown of the state medical examiner's office a couple of years ago, maybe more than that, maybe about three or four years ago, 
Um, and the Sheridan case was one of the cases that they looked at of, you know, of um, really poorly done autopsies. At any rate, uh, the, they get an independent autopsy by a kind of celebrity medical examiner, Michael Bodden, uh, who used to have a show on HBO and has done many, many celebrated cases. And Michael Bodden um, figured out, looked at the knife wounds on John Sheridan and uh, realized that the, the detectives had sort of misunderstood what kind of knife they were dealing with. They thought it was the same knife that killed Joyce, a big kitchen carving knife. But in fact, his wounds were... Uh, deep and narrow, suggesting a much thinner blade, like a what he suggested, a stiletto kind of a knife. Um, and that knife was not found. So you've got now a suicide committed without the weapon that was used in the room. Um, and so that's that was when the, the whole case starts to fall apart. Um, so the detectives and the Somerset County prosecutor really stuck with the murder-suicide um, uh, analysis and decision and theory. Um, they put out a public statement in February of 2015. Um, and then uh, friends of the Sheridans, friends and family uh, organized a letter campaign, a signature campaign and about 200 very prominent citizens, including some former governors and former attorneys general, sent a letter to the state asking that the death certificate, which had uh, John Sheridan's manner of death listed as suicide be changed. Ultimately, the Sheridan family was able to get the death certificate changed. So it now reads as undetermined. Um, and the Somerset County Prosecutor's Office has said all along that the case is still open, uh, but I've never been able to find anybody who's been contacted or, you know, find any evidence that they were actually working on the case. And I found it a little interesting that it, it's not even listed on their cold case list on their website. Um, and so there it stands. It never, the case was never really investigated. Um, and even though they've kind of officially backed off of the suicide theory, um, they've never formally done anything to indicate that John Sheridan was uh, the victim of a homicide on his death certificate or, you know, to reinvestigate. And for the Somerset County Prosecutor's Office to walk into the crime scene and say, oh, this is obviously a murder-suicide before any investigation took place was criminal negligence. And I, 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 I realize that's a very strong term, but um, I'm very upset about it because it is completely irresponsible. They couldn't have done a worse job if they intended to mess up that investigation. They destroyed the crime scene, made it impossible for anybody to come in later on and do any kind of decent forensic work. This is precisely what the Division of Criminal Justice was created to deal with. We are speaking with Nancy Solomon, who's not only the host of Ask Governor Murphy right here on WBGO, but she's the new host and producer of Dead End, a New Jersey political murder mystery podcast series. There will be seven episodes. She's out with number four right now. For me, I love cold case files. I love forensic files, but usually, not always, those cases involve people in places that nobody's ever heard of or about people involved they're not so famous in dead end you hear about so many prominent people you mentioned michael bodden is involved in your podcast that just lends itself to higher profile status of what's going on in this amazing story and as it plays out i, I get the sense it's leading towards a cover-up what do you have to say about that well um i think it's uh you know what became a huge question for me uh, in the process of trying to solve the murder. Um, and I so far have not solved the murder, but one of the big questions that emerged for me was why didn't the state attorney general's office get involved in this? So the state attorney general's office is in charge of all the county prosecutor offices, and it is part of their role uh, and their, and certainly their right uh, legally 
to intervene and take over cases when um, there's a reason to. It, the reason could be that the case involves multiple counties and jurisdictions and they need to connect the dots um, and look at a wider conspiracy. Uh, maybe the, it's a small rural county like Somerset County and it doesn't have the experience dealing with complicated homicide cases. Um, you know, Somerset County probably gets, I don't have the number at the tip of my head, but something like, you know, seven or eight homicides a year, nothing like Essex County, which obviously deals with a lot of, of homicide cases, but so they've got a rural small operation there. Um, and, um, you know, and, and by all indications, uh, you know, Mark Sharon was, went to the attorney general's office to say, look, they've made a mess of this crime scene. Uh, they never really fully investigated. And, you know, we, we detail all that in the podcast, all the, the different mistakes that the detectives made. Um, and so he goes to the attorney general's office and says, you know, we want you to get involved. We want a better investigation. Um, and the attorney general does not get involved. Uh, and so that's where, you know, that's one of the kind of uh, gaping holes in all of this is um, you've got the, an office that was designed for cases like this, and they don't think they need to get involved. And then they won't really talk about it. So I tracked down uh, every assistant attorney general who reported to John Hoffman, who was the attorney general at the time, uh, and tried to find out, you know, why? Why didn't they get involved? Did they think you know, just what was their thinking. Um, and I couldn't get anyone to talk with me. And, um, you know, so I think that, you know, I'm not asking about confidential information as part of the investigation. I'm asking just why, what, as a matter of policy, why wouldn't you supersede that case? Um, so I think it really raises troubling questions about whether we have an effective top law enforcement agency in the state. And uh, if, if, if a family like the Sheridans couldn't get justice, uh, what does that say for all the regular people in the state who deal with, who are victims of crime? Um, you know, I mean, these are people, I mean, John Sheridan was a friend and an advisor to the governor at the time, Chris Christie, and he had worked for and been an advisor to three other governors b before that. Um, if, if, we, if there's no justice for John Sheridan, how, how is there justice for every regular person out there who, you know, is the victim of a crime and uh, wants justice? It's a great point. And if you've heard Nancy Solomon's reports or heard her asking questions, you know she is curious. And that's what makes her a good reporter. She's always thinking about, well, what, why, how? That's Nancy's M.O. I can't imagine a circumstance in which someone kills themselves with a knife and the knife is not there. So is there a, any circumstance where that could happen? Well, I, I, yes, you know, one can find all kinds of odd things. I had one situation where a person attached a knife to some kind of a bungee-like cord that stabbed himself on the bungee cord then tossed it out, out of the window. Uh, so odd things can happen. So when you're going through this series, what's so excellent about it is when you have questions, Nancy, you reach out to people who have some answers. You have so many different and relevant guests in this podcast series. Even when you admit, hey, I don't know all the terms of forensics and investigation techniques, you go to people who do know. You go to college experts. You go to criminologists, reporters who originally covered the case, people in the know. And you get an explanation that we can understand. Each step of the way, you opened a different door, didn't you? The onion just kept peeling. Yeah, it really did. Um, you know, and I'm a, I'm a fan of detective stories. I've never, never been on this side of one trying to solve one before, but um, I am a consumer of those kinds of stories, whether it's podcasts or uh, streaming services or movies and books. Um, so it was it was fun for me to you know try to puzzle out this um, and you know and I think um, as a reporter I, I've always found that the 
the stories that are the most interesting for me to do and the ones that I think I do the best job on are always the ones where I know the least about the subject. And then I can just approach it you know, through my curiosity, whereas, you know, there, I mean, you know, to be honest, there are lots of times I do stories where I feel like when I start out, I already know a bunch about what's going on and I've got some, you know, thoughts and ideas about it. And that can often get in the way and you have to kind of work double time to uh, try to approach it, you know, in a balanced way and get all the details and explain it the way. So it makes sense to people. The easiest time to do that is when I myself don't understand something. And so then the reporting process really mirrors my own, uh, you know, learning about something. During this interview, I'm not going to ask Nancy to get into the details of the case because you need to listen to Dead End. Where can they find this podcast? It's on all the different podcast apps where you get your podcasts. Um, And it's also at... uh, deadendpodcast.org. Um, so you can find it there. Um, yeah, it's, you know, and so far, I mean, a lot of people are listening. It's been very exciting. I love the way you bring in your first interview, the way you open up this podcast. She's somebody who basically says, I don't want to talk about this, Nancy. And I, I think it's a false accusation and that this family has to suffer like this. And then to bring it back up again. Why'd you bring it back up again? Because something came up, and you have to investigate it. And I understand that. But I don't have anything else to say except that I miss her, and I miss John. And uh, you mentioned that you talked about kids and grandkids was there anything on her mind that was bothering her? I know where you're going, but no. I, I'm definitely not. I know you have to ask the question, but no. She, uh, I think she would have said to me. The interview really sets the tone for kind of getting a door slammed in your face at different levels from different people for different reasons. And that has to be frustrating. But also has to fuel your interest in the case, Nancy. To leave it alone is not getting justice for anyone. Well... You know, if you're going to call it a, a door being slammed in my face, that was the nicest door that's ever been slammed in my face in my career. Um, you're talking about uh, Chris Stevens, uh, Joyce Sheridan's best friend, um, who was she she's moved down to the shore. She's retired her and her husband and they've moved down to Long Beach Island. And, uh, you know, when I arrived, I, of course, was using my GPS on my phone. Um, but she was, it was a cold, windy kind of raw day at the shore. I mean, it was like February and she was standing out on the street corner up the block from her house. Cause she was worried that I was going to miss her street. Um, she's just a lovely, lovely woman. And she had laid out pastries and made a pot of coffee. And, um, so that was just about the nicest door ever slammed, but yes, she was really, um, you know, it's a very painful subject. Um, she is still, you know, cannot understand what happened, um, you know, and, and does say like, well, why are you bringing it up again? And then, but then she, she kind of lets me off the hook. Says that, well, something came up and you have to investigate. So um, yeah, it's, um, you know, this is dredging up a very painful uh, part of people's history. Yeah, it's part of reporter's job that no one really likes. We also know that there's always the other side, and we know that families have their feelings, and nobody knows that more than reporters who covered 9-11 or the Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings in Connecticut. We are also impacted by the stories we cover. Let's talk about the production of Dead End. I want to first talk about the music and sound design by Jared Paul. His work really makes this podcast so interesting and eerie. How did that come about? Jared Paul has written all the music. Um, and so he's, he mixes the pieces, but then he also scores them. Um, and so he's such a integral part of the, the, the team. There's just a very small team of us that have been working on this. Um, and so he's so uh, completely involved in the story. Um, you know, we tease him because he's the one who, uh, catches us switching tenses 
in in the script and when I'm we're recording it, it'll be like, no, 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 that's got to be past tense. Um, so he really knows the story and he really knows the material and um, and and he's just, you know, gifted. He's done a beautiful job, uh, you know, creating a mood. Uh, that goes, you know, that really pushes the story along. And, you know, and for me, it's been, you know, super fun part of the experience because, uh, you know, in news, we don't use music and we, you know, sometimes you can use a little music in a story if it's part of the story, like, you know, you went somewhere and they're playing the music, um, but we don't score for emotional effect. Um, and it's, um, it's a, such a great narrative element. It's, it's, it's really an equal element to the interviews and the writing, um, is the music. And, um, you know, so it's been, yeah, it's been super fun to have that. Dead Ends production team includes Emily Botine, Karen Frillman, Rebecca Ibarra, David Lewis, Jeff Pillitz, and Adam Sybil. Music and sound design, as we mentioned, by Jared Paul and additional engineering from Andrew Dunn. What kind of challenge did this podcast series present you as compared to your normal reporting work? Yeah, it is It is different. Um, you know, I think, you know, at the core, it's what we do, the reporting, the asking questions, the finding people, interviewing them. Um, I think I really... Um, yeah, Rebecca Ibarra, my producer early on in the process, actually went on to do other things. And so I only had her for um, about the first six weeks or so. Um, but she created an organization system that has saved me over and over and over again. Like, and it's just like, so it's things like the just organizing the massive amount of material. I mean, I've, I don't, I haven't counted, but I've must have done close to 60 interviews and, and just all the archival tape and the, um, and all the documents uh, and all the research, the news clips. Um, and so she set up a organization system where I can find things easily. Um, and, you know, so it's really, when you're talking about a long project over time and the length of it, I think that's really the challenge for us, those of us who kind of work in the sh short term churn of a newsroom um, that it took like some, for me, you know, uh, it took some help. Um, and the way we tell the story, you know, Emily Botine is the executive producer and she like, we, uh, you know, I write a script and we record it and I do it over and over and over again. And then finally I've like got it committed to memory and she's like, okay, put the script away and just, you know, look at me, look at me, tell me. And so you get, she was sort of trying to break me of my news reading uh, way of doing things that I've done for 30 years. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's, it really helped. Um, so uh, this is, just completely and entirely uh, a team effort. In order to do an investigative podcast like this takes guts. Where did you get the backbone to pull this effort off? I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't really think I, I don't think that is me. I mean, I, I am the most conflict adverse person you'll ever meet. And um, I think I get into these situations where, I just have to do them. You know, I remember as a, when I was a uh, first became a reporter and like on my first job as a daily newspaper reporter, um, you know, being like having to go into a hospital and talk to the family members of someone who had, you know, been seriously injured or just died. And, you know, my heart is like thumping out of my chest. I'm so nervous. And I remember one time I had to actually I mean, you know, because I was under pressure, like, you've got to talk to these people, you have to get the story. And I went through like the door that said no entry, that was only for family members. Um, and I was just dying, like, I am just like, not a rule breaker. And, um, and I was, you know, so I do it out of just fear of failing, you know, like, oh, I've got to get this. I'm going to have to talk to this person and I will procrastinate for hours or days um, to not make that call. Uh, but, um, you know, 
it's just the fear of failure really. Um, so I, I am, I am not particularly brave and I hate being in fights and conflicts and arguments with people. Uh, it's just not me at all. Well, Nancy, I'm not good at predicting things, but I am good at listening and knowing when something is award worthy. And that's certainly the case for dead end. Will there be a second season? I think if um, if news breaks and we get new information, then we would certainly be on top of that and want to do either another episode or, you know, at least I'll cover it for the news side um, to put on the air. Um, it's not our intention that like this series, you know, this ends with a cliffhanger and we go on to season two. That is that is not our intention. Um, not that I've written episode seven yet, but that is not our intention. Dead End is worth your time and ears. Once again, Nancy, congratulations to you and your entire team on a job well done. Thanks so much, Doug. I really appreciate it. You're listening to the WBGO Journal. If you enjoy the news programming you hear on the world's greatest jazz station, support it now by going to wbgo.org support. And thanks. A new exhibit on Jews and cannabis is up at the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research in Manhattan. A standing room only crowd turned out on opening night. Among them, WBGO's John Kalish. Any discussion of Jews in cannabis would have to include a mention of the late Ms. Mesro. Mesro was a fixture in the 1920s Chicago jazz scene. He's also credited with introducing high-quality weed to Harlem's jazz community. As a result, some jazz musicians refer to pot as Mez. Mesro also happened to be the man who sold Louis Armstrong his marijuana. Mesro is featured in the Yivo exhibit. The YIVO archive now includes a menorah bong, thanks to Eddie Portnoy, the curator of the Jews and Cannabis exhibit. The evening began with a panel discussion that included a cannabis journalist, a lawyer specializing in marijuana regulation, the leading cannabis horticulturist, and a New Jersey rabbi who also happens to be a doctor specializing in cannabinoid therapeutics. I asked Portnoy whether the panelists had imbibed. I think that some of them may have been high, although not all of them. The opening also drew a couple of counterculture legends known for their legalization advocacy. I've been doing it since I was 16. That's 72-year-old Aaron Kay, who gained fame in the 1970s for throwing pies at political opponents. Kay is in a wheelchair now. He wore a t-shirt that said, never underestimate an old man who smokes weed. The whole neighborhood is here including the New York Marijuana Freak Brothers. That'd be like me, AJ, Dana. We're like the New York version of Freak Brothers. Kay was referring to Dana Beal, a fellow yippie who is known for his advocacy of the hallucinogen ibogaine, which is a therapy for interrupting opioid addiction. AJ is AJ Weberman, who gained fame for going through Bob Dylan's garbage. Weberman was busted in the year 2000 for selling pot. I was charged with selling a ton of pot and ounces over 20 years. You can imagine how many ounces I sold. A.J. Weberman was not selling weed at the exhibit opening. He was giving it away. I've been giving out free joints. Ran out of them. You know, I had the first marijuana march in 1971. It was me. The exhibit opening attracted a professor of pharmacology at Cornell Weill Medical School. Stephen Gross teaches medical students about cannabis. He remarked upon the pioneering role Israeli scientists played in documenting how different elements of the cannabis plant create signals in the human body. First they discovered the cannabinoid receptor, and then that begged the question, well, what is the signal? What is the chemical that acts on that? So the plant just mimics something that we have in our brain. All drugs are like that. They act on the machinery that pre-exists, and it pre-exists for a reason. You know, evolution would have lost it if it had no utility. The plant 
has been around for a long time. It's co-evolved with our own systems. It's pretty amazing. It turns out that the Israeli chemist who first isolated THC, the compound in marijuana responsible for euphoria, is still at work at the age of 91. Raphael Meshulam was working at the Weissman Institute in the early 1960s when he asked an administrator if he could procure some hashish for research. He called a friend of his apparently, and I heard somebody saying, is he, meaning me, is he reliable? And the administrator, who barely knew me actually, said, of course he's reliable. So the police invited me. I went there, drank a cup of coffee with a person in charge. He gave me five kilograms of hashish, which I took on the bus, and came back to the Weizmann Institute and started doing research on it. Those five kilograms of hashish the chemist took on a bus back to his lab were the equivalent of 11 pounds. CBD, or cannabidiol, is now used for the treatment of pediatric epilepsy 30 years before a drug that contains CBD was approved by the FDA. Meshulam's lab demonstrated CBD's effectiveness in preventing seizures in a study done in Latin America. For the WBGO Journal... I'm John Kalish. This is an extended one-hour edition of the WBGO Journal. We're glad you've joined us. Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood Live, the PBS Beloved series, comes to the Count Basie Center for the Arts in Red Bank on Thursday, May 19th at 2 in the afternoon and then at 5.30 p.m. Two great shows. And one of the stars of the cast joins us now on the WBGO Journal. Kimmy Neuschultz is originally from Chatham, New Jersey. She now lives in New York City, and she plays the wonderful Katerina Kitty Cat. Great to see you, Kimmy. Hi, thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure to have you on the show. Won't you ride along with me, Daniel Tiger and all his friends from the beloved Emmy Award-winning PBS Kids television series, hopping back aboard trolley for Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood Live, and it's coming to Red Bank, the wonderful theater there, the Count Basie Center. Kimmy, this is um, very dear to me that I'm talking to you because I was a huge fan of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood growing up. And when he passed away in 2003, it, it really hit me how much of an impact this man made on my life. Being myself, he always stressed, you know, loving yourself and, and doing things the right way. How special is it for you to be a part of Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood? This has been one of the most rewarding and amazing experiences I've ever had. Uh, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood Live is just an amazing show. And I think it really brings that spirit that Fred Rogers had with the original TV show um, and bringing it for kids now, spreading that message of kindness and being yourself and really learning how to be a good neighbor. Daniel Tiger and all his friends, including Katerina Kitty Cat, are just a part of this amazing production that really has caught storm all across the country with this national tour. Now, this is not the first time that Kimmy has been a part of uh, such a production. She has also been a part of the Polar Express train ride that came to Whippany, New Jersey. But this show has just this beloved cast, you know, in this whimsical, family-friendly theatrical event, Daniel Tiger and his family and friends take audiences on an interactive and exciting adventure to the neighborhood of make-believe. I remember, Kimmy, just couldn't wait for the trolley to come on television. But Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, for those who haven't seen the new version of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, tell us a little bit more about why it's caught so much great success among children and adults. Absolutely. So I think that because a lot of the adults... Uh, have watched this show growing up, there's a lot of characters in the new TV show with Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood uh, that they can recognize. They have, um, you know, King Friday is in there. And we mention, um, you know, X, Uncle X, we call him, X the Owl, and, um, you know, Lady Elaine and all those old characters. And we kind of get to see their kids in the show um, and their kids growing up. So, you know, we have um, O the Owl now, um, who's the nephew of X, Miss Elena, who's the daughter of Lady Elaine. So you kind of get to see the evolution of um, these kids and bringing that from the old TV show to the new one. And I think the message uh, across the board from this 
TV show and also within the live version is very similar to the original one that was in the TV show um, wh where the parents were watching, which, you know, they stress being kind and being yourself. And I think that really resonates with kids, um, being able to fully express your emotions and um, regulate how you're feeling. And I think that's something that kids nowadays um, can also relate to as well as the parents when they were their kids age. Tell us about Katerina Kitty Cat. What do you try to bring to the stage when uh, you are performing? You you have this wonderful costume, first of all, but it, it it must be a little bit difficult, though, to to carry that around on stage, right? Absolutely. I think Katerina is this bigger than life character, and that really shows with the costume. And um, it's so exciting getting to play her because she really is the kind of um, little kitty cat that loves to bring the best and see a positive light with everything. And um, I love just getting to be able to step into those shoes, literally and figuratively, um, and really get to kind of put myself in the mindset of this little five-year-old kitty cat and um, get to enjoy life and feel emotions to the biggest extent, the way that all five-year-olds do. Um, and, you know, learn how to be kind and good. And yeah, she's just, I love playing Katarina. She's amazing. And, you know, she's always twirling around the stage. She loves her ballet. So it's just, um, it's really super fun to get to play her every time I get to step on stage. What's your favorite song that you perform in the show? Ooh, probably, um, oh gosh, there's so many good ones. Um, Friends Help Each Other, it's a short little one, um, but it's just a cute little catchy tune saying, you know, friends help each other. Um, and, you know, it's about being, you know, a good friend, a good neighbor. I also love Try New Food, which is, I believe, also in the original TV show. So the live version brings a lot of new songs that the kids and parents haven't heard yet, but it also has a lot of, you know, songs that they've heard from the TV shows. Um, so Try New Food, I believe, is from the TV show, and it's about how you're never going to know if you're going to like something unless you try it, which I take to heart even now as an adult. <laughs> Kimmy Neuschel spent a lot of her early years dancing around the living room, putting on her puppet shows for her parents, and it started at the age of three? Yes, yep. <laughs> and now coming yeah. home, coming home to, to Red Bank for this performance, does it have an even extra special? Because I'm sure your family's going to be there. Oh, absolutely. You know, my parents have always been so supportive of me growing up. And um, with this career path, it's been I've been so lucky to have such an amazing support system and um, theater, especially children's theater, has always been something that I've held very um, close to my heart because it's what made me fall in love with theater when I was younger. Um, so now getting to bring this um, to kids you know, all across the country has been so, so special. And um, my parents coming to see the show and my family and all the people that I love and who support me getting to see me in this production, especially in my home state, it's um, kind of brings it full circle, you know? <laughs> so um, yeah, it's just really amazing. And I'm really excited to be back in my hometown performing this really special production. Kimmy is an alum of Ithaca College's musical theater program that's where she got her bfa so you've always loved this theater as you've talked about but do you remember the first show that you went to that really grabbed your attention yeah i think so i always really loved um you know tv uh tv shows like barney and blues clues that had like small musical numbers but the first live show i remember seeing i remember my parents brought me to see the lion king on broadway when i was oh i want to say like seven and i was so impressed because there's a bunch of puppetry in that show as well so getting to see like this big larger than life um you know just production that's it, it was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen in my whole life. And I already knew at that point that I really liked being on stage because I had, you know, done, you know, the typical ballet recitals as, you know, a five-year-old does. And um, getting to see professionals do this and see what it's like to put on a really big, amazing, spectacle-driven performance, I was like, that is what I want to do. That's exactly what I want to do when I grow up. And, you know, I stuck to my guns. I, you know, I never really considered another career path, which a lot of people would find a little insane because um, 
you know, being in this career path can be a little risky at times, but it has been so worth it. I, you know, throughout high school, I did productions and, you know, in high school, um, I auditioned for college programs, ended up going to Ithaca College where I did theater for four years there. Um, And throughout my time there, I focused a lot on children's theater as well. I um, helped choreograph productions at the local middle school. And um, I taught voice lessons for kids, younger kids, and which is what I did right out of college too. Um, And yeah, there's just such a special place in my heart for doing theater for kids because um, you never know what this could be a kid's first production that they see and it could, you know, inspire them to maybe want to do theater themselves, or it could just give them, you know, a little bit of pep in their step for the rest of the day. And, you know, doing that really makes it worth it. We're speaking with Kimmy Newsholz, who is one of the stars of Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood Live. It's coming to the Count Basie Center for the Arts on Thursday, May 19th. What is it about music? Kids at such an early age, you talked about you know, children's theater, you, you've studied this. Why do kids just, we have a, a one-year-old here in the family and she just gets so excited when she hears music. What is it about that? Yeah, I think that um, a lot of the times, you know, music can actually be very therapeutic. And I, um, I believe that music is, you know, a kind of gateway to the soul and um, getting to really speak from the heart. And so I think with Daniel Tiger using music as a means to communicate a lot of these important messages like try new food and be a good neighbor and kindness is everywhere, stuff like that. I think it really resonates because those tunes get stuck in their head, right? And so they're singing it all around the house. And eventually because the tunes get stuck in their head with the words, they associate the words and the music and they're able to um, really understand what these messages we're trying to send are. And so I think that, um, using music as a tool to communicate these messages is really, really um, special. And I think it's um, the reason why a bunch of kids love Daniel Tiger and love the show. And a lot of kids love the live show as well. Yeah. And for those who haven't seen the, you know, the cartoon version of Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood on PBS, what's the relationship between Katerina and Daniel? Oh, they are the best of friends. Um, Katerina and Daniel, you know, they go to school together and they go to Music Man stands together. They're just like the best of friends. And, you know, they kind of, um, as friends do, they sometimes disagree or they have moments where one person is feeling one emotion and another is feeling something else and learning how to balance that and um, how to be a good friend to each other. Um, but they really, they love each other and they um, their interactions together are just the best. I think they bring out the best in each other, which is, um, which is just amazing, yeah. <laughs> Kimmy, we didn't really think about it when we were young. I mean, me as, as a young kid, but Mr. Rogers was one of the forerunners in having an inclusive neighborhood. He invited people of all walks of life, all colors into his home, into the... Uh, the wonderful neighborhood of Mr. Rogers. And when you think about that foresight, you think about how he was one of the first people on television that shared so much with so many different people. He was really special. Did you do a deep dive into Fred Rogers' life before doing this show? Yeah, definitely. I think it's really important as any actor does to do their research about the show beforehand. And although I'm a little young to have watched the original TV show, um, my parents definitely did. And so I remember asking them a lot about what it was like um, growing up with that TV show. And I know uh, Fred Rogers meant a lot to so many people. And um yeah, that message of inclusivity is super important. Um, and it, it was really amazing, especially stepping into rehearsal the first day. Um, we have so many amazing people, diverse people in this cast that from all walks of life that bring so much to this production. And I think that's exactly from what I've read and what my parents have told me, exactly what Fred Rogers and the, his message was. And um, I think that's great, especially traveling across the country and getting uh, kids getting to see that diverse um, cast on stage. It's, um, it, yeah, it's something that's super important to me and was super important to Fred Rogers. So uh, this show just, it means so much to me. The thing that I love about Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, the television series from Fred Rogers Productions that airs daily on PBS Kids, is that once you see that show, it may spark young people's interest to go back and watch the old episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And yes, you know, there are a lot of people that say, you know, it's kind of hokey at times. 
but the message was so strong if you really and music was such a huge part and jazz we're a jazz station here at wbgo we love the fact that fred rogers used jazz music and had the piano there and had several guests in fact when he passed away kimmy one of the calls i got was from a person who said they learned about jazz because the marsalis family they were guests on mr rogers neighborhood do you like jazz I am a lover of all types of music. I wouldn't say I'm specifically a jazz lover, but yeah, I listen to all kinds of music. So jazz is definitely up there. <laughs> and the animated show has garnered a host of prestigious awards, including the 2019 Daytime Emmy Award for Outstanding Preschool Children's Animated Series, the 2019 Parents' Choice Gold Award for Television, and the 2018 Common Sense Media Seal of Approval. Anything else you'd like to add about the show, Kimmy? Just that I think all families are going to really love it. You can get your tickets at DanielTigerLive.com. Um, and yeah, I think it's just an amazing experience for the whole family. Um, the kids are going to get to see some of their favorite characters come to life. And um, yeah, it's going to be so much fun. I can't wait to see everyone there. I have to ask you about the Polar Express, too, because so many people sure. love that movie. What, what, what was that experience like for you on stage? Oh, yeah. So it's actually on a moving live train. So it's from the Whippany train station in New Jersey. And um, we had a bunch of uh, rides throughout the Christmas season. Um, pass passengers were bored and we basically kind of put on um, a show based off the movie. So, you know, you get that hot chocolate dance that everyone loves. You get to serve hot chocolate and cookies. Um, and, you know, the kids get to meet Santa and they get a bell, they get their golden ticket stamped like you do in the movie. Um, and we read the book, The Polar Express on the on the train. And it's a really magical experience for everyone who comes. I know I loved working on that show. Um, and again, it's so cool because you get to, it's a show on a moving train. So, you know, you get to actually pass the North Pole and see all the elves and yeah, super, super fun. Love that production. It's early in the day, but can I get you to sing just a few bars from Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood Live? Oh, okay. <laughs> I can try my best. Um, let's see. We can do... Oh, gosh. What song? Is there any song that you specifically would like? <laughs> what you feel is best for you right now. Okay, great. <laughs> let's see. <clears throat> Friends help each other. Yes, they do. Friends help each other. Yes, they do. Even if you can do it by yourself. It's much more fun when a friend can help. Friends help each other. Yes, they do. It's true. Beautiful voice of Kimmy Neuschultz, the pride of Chatham, New Jersey, now living in New York City. And I'm here in near Pittsburgh, where I grew up in the home, with, here with my mom, and just a few steps away where I used to watch Fred Rogers in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So this is a very special moment for me to join you, Kimmy, and you're infectious, your energy, your beautiful voice, and your passion. It comes through, and can't wait to uh, see you perform on stage. Congratulations on the show. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Top Gun Maverick brings Tom Cruise back to the screen, flying faster than a speeding bullet, doing his own stunts in jet planes, blowing stuff up, reclaiming the pretty girl he left behind, and burning a hole through the screen with his white-hot teeth as usual. Our film critic, Harlan Jacobson, is here to tell you where this cruise missile lands first. How about at the 75th Cannes Film Festival, which begins next Tuesday night, and where this sequel to the long-ago original 1986 film gets a special out-of-competition screening in the full-to-capacity 2300-seat Grand Théâtre Lumière. Cruise... Chief Sizzle producer Jerry Bruckheimer, director Joseph Kaczynski on his fourth film, plus stars Jennifer Connelly, John Hamm, Ed Harris, Miles Teller, and hopefully Val Kilmer, haul themselves up the red carpet in front of thousands of cheering peasants, all screaming, Maverick! As Captain Pete Mitchell, Cruz was 24 when cast opposite Val Kilmer and director Tony Scott's Top Gun Navy pilot school and learned a few tricks from instructor Kelly McGoes that had more to do with her black leather leggings and stratospheric stiletto high heels than the F-14 fighter jet's high-altitude histrionics. Or, you know, maybe make that avionics. Cruz hit 60 this year, 59 when he filmed this, 
and he looks better now than I did at 24. He even does a strip to the ripped abs beach football scene, you know, team building, and the IMDB says he insisted on a reshoot a week later, forcing the entire cast into a starvation diet and gym routine a second time around. Based on the characters created by Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr. from Ehud Yonet's 1983 article in California Magazine, the story here involves the usual testosterone-fueled pilot palaver, with room for a carefully curated group of gender and ethnic wing people, with handles like Phoenix, Hangman, Coyote, Fanboy, and Payback, played by Monica Barbero, Jay Ellis, Greg Davis, Glenn Powell, and Danny Ramirez. Now the aging hero has to fly one last mission to take out a uranium enrichment plant located in an impenetrable crack between mountains in an unnamed country. Ha! I wonder which one. I flew, I bombed, I ran. Only this time, Captain Mitchell is downgraded to instructor at the start by mission commander John Hammett-Up. reputation precedes you. I have to admit, I wasn't expecting an invitation back. They're called orders, Maverick. Move over, Generation Double Z. This is nothing less than the old guy gets it done. Am I telling you anything that you don't already know going in? And comes back to the just-so-cute barmaid, Jennifer Connelly, as Penny Benjamin, always ready with a wink and an equally toothy grin. Never mind that Maverick forgot about her at least three years earlier, consumed instead by making repairs to his World War II-era P-51 Mustang that Cruz keeps in a hangar in the Mojave Desert and actually flies to impress in this film. Oi, jet fuel motorheads, pistons over persons until they hit 60. Sociopolitically, this is, however, the perfect Joe Biden in his Aviator Sunglasses cinema analog movie about saving America and the world. While Top Gun Maverick may seem like the most recent in a long line of the old guy get her done genre that goes back at least to the searchers or Shane or High Noon and found full flowering in the artist versus bureaucracy workplace films of Clint Eastwood, the thing that makes Top Gun Maverick fun and absolutely worth seeing in the rarefied atmosphere of Cannes or on IMAX here when it opens May 27th is the F-18 flying. It's sensational. Zip, zip, zap. Roll and hurl, upside down, not backwards, roll and drop. Whoops, that's Cruz in a 360 upside down on top of you. The film's true genre is Cinerama, Navy style. Up that roller coaster till you drop and your stomach slingshots out of your mouth. Go ahead, go for it, go for that. I'll report to you next time from the 75th edition of the Cannes Film Festival. I'm eager to see Armageddon time. My friend James Gray's 1955 set Queen's Memoir. One of his best films was his first Little Odessa about growing up in Brooklyn. This time, he's cast Anne Hathaway, Anthony Hopkins, and Jeremy Strong. If James is a real friend, he'll make sure I'm invited to the world premiere screening and the dinner afterwards. I'm packing a tux only for that, Gray. Verstehe? And I'm Harlan Jacobson. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. You can join us next weekend for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. Next week, we'll start at 5.30 on Saturday morning. 
If you enjoy the news programming you hear on the world's greatest jazz station, your public radio station, WBGO, you can support it now by going to wbgo.org support. Or you can call us at 1-800-499-9246. That's 1-800-499-9246. Meanwhile, keep listening to the world's greatest jazz station, your station, WBGO and WBGO.org.